Welcome back to Movie Mindset. And uh, today is the day on the run of this show in which it is finally time to talk about Mr. American Movies himself, the legend, the icon, the master, Clint Eastwood. An artist I've always loved, but as an American white man of a certain age, I find my, as my male biological clock ticks away, my appreciation for Mr. Eastwood, particularly as a director and not just one of the coolest movie guys of all time, has only intensified. What I love about Clint as a movie star is that he basically always plays himself, or rather, not so much himself, but variations and mutations on his cinematic self. Today we are talking about two such variations on Eastwood's cop character. In 1983's Sudden Impact, the fourth Dirty Harry film, and the only one directed by Eastwood himself, uh, Harry Callahan teams up with a spree killer executing her unpunished rapists in a film that is shockingly somehow not as offensive as that summary might lead you to believe. And then in 1984's Tightrope, we get maybe the horniest Clint movie of all time a nasty and weird sex thriller that he directed much of, where he plays a New Orleans homicide cop who struggles to be a good divorced dad of two daughters while trawling the flesh markets, brothels, and handjob parlors of the French Quarter searching for a serial rapist and killer. In this movie, Clint experiments with kinky sex, and we get a lingering shot of his fully oiled-up ass. But ultimately, he learns to respect women, and in doing so, presents a canny deconstruction of both his own real-life womanizing and his on-screen Dirty Harry persona. These two movies are by no means Clint's best movies, but they are, they are among his most interesting to me. Indeed, a movie does not need to be a masterpiece in order to be movie mindset. I chose them because they're such weird reflections of each other and highlight what I find most fascinating about Clint. His artistic self-invention, his total self-control over his own image, and his embrace of and subversion of his own mythic persona as a reactionary cultural and political figure and avatar of American masculinity. But before we get into the movies, I want to introduce our guest for this episode. We've booked uh, one of the world's most prominent Clint Eastwood experts. I'm speaking, of course, about Jeffrey Nguyen, age 27, of China. Jeffrey, welcome to... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're joined by John Semley. I would never in a million years give a platform to the vile traitor and Clint Eastwood impersonator, Jeffrey Nugin, 27, of Canada. Oh, no, uh, China. You just gave away... Of China. You, <laughs> yeah. just, you just gave away my alt, my 10 <laughs> alt accounts. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, John, uh, before we get into the, uh, the two movies of the day, uh, you just... I mean, you, you just wrote the definitive uh, account of basically my favorite thing on Twitter recently, which is like the story of the, the ongoing battle between the dozens of dueling official Clint Eastwood Twitter accounts, who, which is really the perfect distillation of the master and everything I just said about artistic artifice, uh, duplication, and authenticity. So, uh, John, what did you discover about the Clint Eastwood Twitter accounts? 
Yeah. And first of all, well, I got to shout you out for uh, giving me a leg up on that. Cause I did the desperate freelancer thing where I'm just like, please God, let me write about this. And then you retweeted it and someone actually reached out. So I'm batting 100% on pulling out that pathetic uh, tactic <laughs> that people use. Well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't do that but, yeah. for just anyone, but this is the perfect match of writer and subject matter that I knew I, knew I oh, had to uh, weigh in on. Definitely. So basically for the past over a year, uh, there's been drama and dust-ups on Twitter about the official Clint Eastwood Twitter accounts. I remember this happening when a woman, well, in quotes, signed up calling herself uh, Suzanne at, at Sue Malpazo, referring to Malpazo Films, Clint's production company, who claimed to be his assistant. And she would just post these like pictures of him shagging golf balls or like getting <laughs> prime rib from a buffet with <laughs> captions like dinner with the boss and stuff like that. Uh, and originally had a private account. And I was all like, they followed me back. So I was allowed to follow the private account. And I was like, well, why is this account private? It's like, there are many fakes and frauds out there. We have to keep Clint's legacy private. People will steal these pictures and photos photos of his precious artifacts. Uh, and then <laughs> that, <laughs> that morphed into the Clint official account, which was eventually banned. And then this other guy emerged Clint archives, who I believe also runs the Clint, <laughs> which is the only official fuck man. I can't even get through this. The only official verified Clint Eastwood account. And they would post these pictures of like Eastwood, just like in the thrall of his daily life, like picking out, you know, granite at a marble <laughs> warehouse or my, my favorite one is just him with a bag of sneakers and it says shopping at shoe gas. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I chose these movies because it, it's sort of like uh, I, his, uh, his deconstruction of his iconic film persona. But like, holy shit, did the photo, the official Clint Eastwood photo shared on this account go even further to to demythologizing the man and the legend himself as I mean you said all of the official Clint Eastwood photos have a real crusty visits relatives in Annapolis Maryland trading card energy <laughs> right. exactly yeah there's one that's like him at Coachella with PJ Harvey, with PJ Harvey. <laughs> I was like, what the hell yeah, yeah, yeah. PJ Harvey. Me Maybe like, yeah, the only person to be with Nick Cave and Clint Eastwood at separate times of their life. But yeah, I mean, there's also one that I got a flag where it's like on the set of Sully and it's him in a director's chair facing a wall in black and white. It just looks like the final shot of the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> but, but it's yeah, it's totally this thing where it's like, you know, it's almost hard now because I think. For the past 10 years, Clint Eastwood has been the guy who yelled at a chair at the Republican National Convention. <laughs> but you see these pictures of a guy who's just like swimming in a size small golf shirt. And it's like, oh, this is like the ultimate <laughs> paragon of American masculinity. Um, but more to the point, it's like the way th these accounts were patrolling, which were official and which were fake accounts was so funny. The, the watermark. Look for the logo. <laughs> My favorite thing is uh, the logo is the only way to protect against the false East Wu. <laughs> which is a reference to the Clint Eastwoo account. <laughs> and I remember when I, I, I asked the guy about it, it's like, how do we, how do we know that these ones are fakes? He goes, Clint would never shorten his name. It's the one thing he would never do. <laughs> it's like, 
okay, fair enough. You're the expert. Oh, well, like, I, all, of the, uh, all of the accounts really have, uh, someone pointed this out, like the, the accounts in arguing with each other or warning, or warning unsuspecting followers away from the inauthentic Clint Eastwood accounts, they have all taken on the tenor of the pre-taped call-in show host from Mr. Show, just of like increasingly exasperated oh God, yeah. and baffling uh, instructions on how to authenticate and follow the real Clint Eastwood account. Yeah, and the guy just name searches Clint Eastwood and will send increasingly catty replies like, you're following a fake account, but that's your choice, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I read this article about it for Defector where it's like, I kind of actually like withheld some information that I had where it's like, I don't want the person running these accounts to like have a mental breakdown or something like that. Uh, and it was more about just like how brain meltingly funny it is, especially happening in this like end of Twitter, perpetual end of Twitter era where it's like the notion of verification and celebrity have become so topsy turvied that like the idea that there's just people patrolling the landscape of who is the real Clint Eastwood and who isn't is, I don't know, insanely funny and on point to me. Well, because like, I mean, the, the charming part of it is, is imagining Clint Eastwood or anyone even associated with Clint Eastwood engaging in Twitter at all. You know, or knowing what a computer yeah. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and like the, if you've seen the digital effects in Firefox, you know that there's not like a lot of computer savvy. <laughs> um, but I, I guess the other thing I really love about this is, like, at this point, I really don't care that they're all fake accounts. What I want to know is where the fuck are all these photos of Clint Eastwood coming from where he's just like eating a salad, pointing a gun at the camera. Like there's several there's several images of him pointing a gun <laughs> at the person taking the photo. Yeah, on the set of 1517 to Paris. <laughs> yeah. Or it's just like Clint inspects. It's it's Jake Gyllenhaal from Nightcrawler okay. following him around. Hessa, like, you're not far <laughs> off. It's like this is some of the shit that I came across kind of after the fact that I was like, uh, this isn't really relevant to the nature of the story, but many of the fake accounts claim to be run by this dude, Andrew, who's a security guard at Warner Brothers. So I literally think it's just a guy who is paid to be at a medium distance from Clint Eastwood, like taking photos of him. <laughs> uh, he's like, he's like Dennis Franz in a Brian De Palma movie. just like, you know, 12 feet behind him at all times. Um, but yeah, Andrew's on a tear. I assume it's him who like sent me some uh, 45 page email from a proton mail account about how Francis McDormand is Sandra Locke's secret daughter. What? Uh, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah um which doesn't even track if you look at any of their ages or anything like that but it, yeah wait <laughs> that's incredible i mean like yeah it, it doesn't matter because we're, we're, we've now we're now being treated to more images of clint eastwood than we've ever had before yeah i was worried i'd ruined it and i was it's so renaissance i like i the, my one worry is like oh maybe this will like shut the things down and they'll have to disappear but if anything he seems to have like only ramped it up and now i've become someone who he's saying is part of the fake account empire and that i'm clearly in with the fake accounts which like what would that even mean uh and the reason he doesn't like the fake accounts is because with the biggest clint eastwood twitter account which is just posts like tribute photos and all this shit will sometimes be like it's important to resist Russian aggression in the Ukraine. And he's like, all this guy cares about his politics. Clint would never oppose Russian aggression in the Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it, it's been wonderful. And like I said, I think this is a, this is a good intro into like the idea of like, 
uh, just celebrity and like movie mythology duplication and like artistic authenticity. So before, like, I guess like just opening up into, into the two films that we're going to talk about today, I guess, uh, John, I'll start with you. Like, where do you place Clint Eastwood? Like, as an artist, like, how do you conceive of him and his work as like a filmmaker and like an iconic American actor? Yeah. Like I love him, uh, as an actor. I mean, when I was a kid and I had a spare in high school, I, that's when I got most of my serious movie watching done and got super into the Sergio Leone movies, watched all the hits, uh, but it's really only in recent years when his movies have kind of hit this sort of old man, late style phase from roughly American sniper through to the present, you know, movies like Sully, like Richard Jewell, like the 1517 to Paris, which is like the only book I feel I could write or the only movie I feel like I could write a whole book about, uh, where they are doing this thing where they seem so let's call it economical and not lazy, but just kind of like rushed. Like he'll get a movie greenlit and it's in theaters within four months. And then he's on to something else. This guy's 92 years of age, you know, but also as you're saying, well, they are so clearly engaged with reckoning with not only his own iconography, but the idea of America as being at all exceptional in yeah. the world or having any sort of dignified global status. And they're engaged with it in that way that I think is pure auteurism. Like kind of like what you're saying with these films where that whole auteur theory belief that even the least interesting film by an auteur is more interesting than the great films by a journeyman, you know? And it's almost like he's doing all this stuff, playing around with concepts of virtual reality, of simulation, without even knowing that he's doing it. Like the other thing that's so lovable about Eastwood is he's one of those like anti-intellectual John Ford style directors, you know? Like when they asked John Ford, how'd you get to Hollywood? And he said, a train. Like every Clint Eastwood <laughs> interview is like that, where he's like, I don't think about anything like he only does two takes but somehow these things come together and have like a consistency of not only style which maybe people would call it a non-style but a consistency of like theme that i find so interesting and you know also in that fucking loser ironist way they're kind of fun to goof on as well so they've got it all you know well put and Hess, how would you describe your relationship with uh, mr eastwood well i my relationship with clint was um i obviously like as a kid i loved the man with no name movies and i like steered clear of all spaghetti westerns that weren't those um for a while because i just loved him so much and i like had a huge crush on him he was a very formative uh crush in my youth but um basically i love his like late period films i love his early films his acting style and like the way that he like is aware of his own persona and will play with it in his movies is really interesting to me. You know, like you see it a lot in this one where I feel like, you know, sudden impact it and tightrope are kind of like, I was a little like, I was like, Oh, why did Will pick these? But then I realized it's sudden impact is gender and tightrope is sexuality. And it's like Clint's like split. Yeah in his own mind of those two things as like the cop character kind of, which I'm like, I say half jokingly, but um, I think he's like a master. I love Sully. I made fun of Sully for so long for like years. I like made fun of the idea of the movie Sully. And then I watched it and I was like, I kind of want to start this over and rewatch it again. Like right now, <laughs> because this movie is so sick. 
Has um, I have a picture that I took. I and, did, me and my wife did the Universal Studios tour years ago. And they're like, here's the green screen from Sully. And I'm like getting to the other <laughs> side of the carriage to take a picture. It's literally just a blank wall. <laughs> it's like, here's where they landed the plane in Sully. <laughs> this is where he went for a run right in front of the screen. On here's the bar where Michael Rappaport goes, hey, we got Sully here. We got Sully there. We got Sully everywhere. <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, you know, like we talk about his, his late era movies and like and, and these are both in the 80s. But like it's his, shall we say, economy of style, his his uh, his, uh, his 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 quickness in making movies. Uh, but also it's like his total control over them because he really is like one of the last real American movie stars and one of the only guys who ever like reached the level he did and managed to get a studio, like in this case, Warner brothers to basically give him the keys to the kingdom. And like, he has his own lot and like, he doesn't let suits on it at all. Like he just, he has total keys. He does whatever he wants to do. And he's probably the last guy that's ever going to be allowed to do that. And, and like John, to your point about like, especially in his late era movies, but really like his entire run, some from starting as a director and even as a star, despite his reputation for being this like cranky old reactionary, which like he, he certainly is like the overall point of view, I think of his entire body of work is like you said, this really kind of like mournful dissection of the idea of, like you said, uh, American exceptionalism and the American character. And like, I think he has a really, a very jaundiced view about like uh, the modern American state and like, and men and how men fit into that in, in, in general. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see that in these two movies. Yeah, I think they're a good pairing, too, because like Sudden Impact is a Dirty Harry movie. And I mean, the Dirty Harry movies are just like fully openly reactionary. I don't think that there's like and that's cool. Ninety percent of good movies are. Uh, But then, you know, Tightrope feels so engaged with that idea that it's like, here's the paleo hetero cop. But he's also got an oily ass and suggests that he like suck the guy off in jail. You know. All right, so let's uh, let's get into it with uh, sudden impact from uh, 1983. Dirty Harry is at it again in sudden impact. What you doing, you pig-head sucker? You boys, put those guns down. Say what? We're not just gonna let you walk out of here. Who's we, sucker? Smith. Wesson and me. Go ahead. Make my day. Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry. Sudden impact. This is the fourth in the fourth entry in the Dirty Harry series. Uh, this is the only Dirty Harry movie directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, I would love to eventually talk the original Dirty Harry directed by Don Siegel, but we already did already did one Don Siegel movie on our, our, our little movie mindset run here. Uh, but Sudden Impact, I would say, is like is one of the more interesting ones for reasons that we've talked about, but uh, may become clear. So basically, the movie opens and it's it's San Francisco, baby, and like it's just nighttime helicopter shot. It's the my first note is Mario Kart ass music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> the, the opening credits. I, I want to point out that the opening credits for both of these movies are exactly the same. Yeah, one is Mario Kart, the other Saturday Night Live music. 
<laughs> the music is inside an impact is by Lalo Schifrin who did yeah. the enter the dragon soundtrack, I believe. Uh, uh, but yeah, also to talk, you mentioned the like Clint Eastwood economy. Both of these films have multiple scenes where it just seems like they're not lit at oh, all. Oh yeah. I was opening especially sudden impact. impact. I was really yeah. struggling for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it opens and we are, you know, uh, high on the bluffs up the coast. We see the beautiful golden gate bridge and it's a, it's a man in a, woman in a parked car and as the camera zooms in we realize they're you know in a state of congress they're necking by the bridge the woman undoes his pants but instead of taking him out she takes out a gun and shoots his dick off <laughs> and then uh, wa- walks away and we realize it's Sandra Locke and now we really can't talk about sudden impact without talking about the real life relationship between Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke this would be their last on-screen collaboration, and indeed the last movie Sandra Locke appeared in that uh, achieved any kind of wide release. So, I mean, uh, they had a, a fraught relationship, to say the, say the least, in her 1997 autobiography, The Good, the Bad, and the Very Ugly, A Hollywood Journey. She called Eastwood a completely evil, manipulating, lying excuse for a man. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can I say, because I literally have that book right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, uh, <laughs> there, there's an amazing anecdote in that book where she talks about uh, giving a custom, I just posted about this on Twitter, but she gives a custom made wig to a child with cancer where she like requisitions the Warner Brothers private jet to drive to Shelbyville, Tennessee to give a wig to a dying child who like loves Sandra Locke. And she spends so much time about like what an amazing person she is. And then Clint's just like, what the hell are you doing that for? You shouldn't be around kids with cancer. Like just like the <laughs> most evil version of himself that you could imagine. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, like they, they started their relationship. They made many movies together and like Clint was, uh, Clint was married at the time and already had a couple kids, but it was sort of like, I don't know, the companion in marriage, they live separately and like Sandra Locke always felt like she was tarred with being like the other woman or breaking up a marriage. Needless to say, uh, you know, by her accounts, Clint treated her rather coldly and uh, there's a lot of. So she, I will blood. say, was married. She, she was married too to a gay sculptor that she had a platonic marriage with, and this guy ran the game, baby. Like he lived off Clint Eastwood's dime for like a decade. Where like he was like setting Eastwood was setting this guy up at a house in California, and it was like Sandra Locke's platonic husband, this guy named like Gordon Anderson or something <laughs> like that. Oh, that's so, so sick. Like, that's yeah, the dream a, gig, you know, <laughs> just oh, totally, sculpting yeah. like cocks or whatever he was probably sculpting. Doll, he sculpted dolls. <laughs> oh and Sandra God, Locke even. will spend like <laughs> nine pages talking about his doll sculptures and then be like, ah, then we made Sudden Impact. It was okay. Oh, he's a twink. Clint is bottomlessly cool. Oh my gosh. Is he? There he was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he passed away. But. Oh, R.I.P. Um, my, uh, John, another one of my favorites from the, uh, the Sandra Locke, uh, memoir is that she, she talks about how Clint in his movies constantly makes references to the Korean war to give people the, uh, to give people the impression that he's a veteran who served in one of America's wars. But she mentions that, uh, his military service during the Korean war <laughs> consisted of him being a lifeguard of the U S military base for a year. <laughs> yeah. And he would, and he would screen movies to the GIs. Like he was a projectionist and lifeguard. <laughs> I love being on the idea of being a lifeguard for the U S military. It's just like, yeah. Hey, no rough housing, no running by the pool. <laughs> 
the beautiful generals. Exactly. You have to screen movies for the beautiful generals. <laughs> P- pulling out, a, pulling out a Colt forty five because you guys are playing Marco Polo. That's actually my um my grandpa grew up in Sicily during World War Two, and he told me a story. This is kind of tangential, but he told me a story one time of him when he was like ten or eleven. Him and his three friends playing soccer against American GIs. And the American GIs lost so bad that one of them shot the gun with the shot the ball with a gun. (laughs) (laughs) Not far off. (laughs) That's great. That's a nice like counterpoint to the armistice like Germany uh, Britain football game in World War (laughs) One. And you know, I mean, that's the thing about America. We don't like losing. You know, we oh, yeah. we're a nation of winners. We're we're a nation of losers that uh, nonetheless has this psychopathic need to win everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I guess just like I, like the the, the Sandra Locke, uh, like their their re- their fraught real life uh, romantic relationship and like how it relates to this movie is that this was originally written as a movie for Sandra Locke. Um, it was uh, basically uh, like it was supposed to be about her character and sort of like a serious movie about like a like a rape revenge story or whatever. And then Clint saw it and basically uh, just gave it to his screenwriter. And they were like, yeah, we can throw Dirty Harry in here, too. And the, <laughs> the end result really is what shows. makes this movie. <laughs> truly yeah, shows. The end result is what makes this movie baffling <laughs> and fascinating because it really is like two different movies in one. And one, the Sandra Locke story is this like really queasy like nasty like rape revenge movie and like the killings really like turn your stomach and then the other half is just dirty harry up to his old goofs and spoofs (laughs) chopping it up having fun and everyone he kills in the movie is like a cartoon it's it's literally he kills frank pentaglia from the godfather at a wedding (laughs) he just gives him a heart attack by showing up (laughs) literally it is like it is like wiley coyote and roadrunner where clint is a roadrunner and he's like it's like there's this insane dissonance and I texted Will about this when I was watching the movie, but like there's this crazy dissonance of everyone telling him, we don't need people like you anymore. It's a different time now. And then meanwhile, he takes five steps outside and six people are trying to kill him. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. It's like, there's such like, and people are like, Stop causing trouble. There's like 10 scenes where he gets reprimanded for trying for someone trying to assassinate him <laughs> in the course of like well, three yeah, days. That's a, that, that, that's a thing. Like you mentioned the opening scene, but it's like it doesn't even come back to her character for like 25 minutes. It just <laughs> nope. becomes like a dirty, hairy short. <laughs> yeah. And this is the movie that gives us like go ahead, make my day and all those yeah. classic scenes where he takes out like nine guys who are robbing a coffee shop for probably forty five dollars. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, but then he he essentially gets put on like forced R and R and goes to this seaside town where the two of them kind of link up. I guess. Um, this yeah, is they also link and build in this movie. This is also one of my dad's favorite movies. So when I knew we were doing it, I I texted him. I was like, "We're doing sudden impact on the podcast," and he was like, "Okay." <laughs> Does your dad restore antique carousels for a living? <laughs> yeah, he's he was really into the carousel parts of the movie. <laughs> like, not <laughs> you can take or leave the other stuff. And you know, like it's it it's 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 like a template like stock plot line in all the Dirty Harry movies of Harry Callahan being being chewed out, as you said, by like a, a procession of like the stupid police commissioner. 
the stupid judge, the stupid DA, the stupid human rights activists and, and social justice warriors. But yeah, it's just over and over again, Clint getting chewed out by being like, damn it, Harry, you, you can't do this. You're on forced leave. And he's just like, what do you want from yeah. me? Yeah. <laughs> Burying those criminals cost the city $12,000. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, like, and the first time we see Harry, he's like, he's, he's late to court. He like he he turns up the court late and like as the judge dismisses a case against some some young punks yeah who like you know as she says he was like we you know in the eyes of the court the evidence you obtained illegally doesn't exist and he lets these these punks out and like they try to they try to like you know uh, talk sl- talk talk sweet to him in the elevator and he's like to me punk you're dog shit and I'll <laughs> scrape up dog shit anytime I see dog shit on my shoes be careful where the dog long, shits uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then John, as you said, then he goes to get uh, his morning coffee and notices that there's something amiss because the uh, the lady behind the counter just like dumps sugar in it. And he's like, I've never had sugar in my coffee. And then like, too oh, sweet. it's too sweet. It's yeah. because some some street punks, some some young uh, black youths are robbing this diner. So he just like goes through the back entrance, comes in and shoots like six guys. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, that, that's uh, that's when we get the, the famous line. Go ahead. Make my day. And what I love about the delivery of that line is that, like, at, at this point, like, it's one of the most iconic Dirty Harry, like, uh, one-liners. And it's, like, it's not in the first movie. It takes four movies to get to it. And when he first delivers it, it's, like, he's so bored by it. You know, like, he's just yeah, so yeah. bored by the endless procession of criminal scum he has to put in the ground that he's just, like, he says it so, ha- so half-heartedly. But he uses it again later yes, in the movie yes. as if he knows that it's his catchphrase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I kind of actually love how he says it because he really is like, he's like, this is so boring to him. Like, it, you do get the the feeling he's like so sick of people trying to kill him everywhere he goes, <laughs> like, and all this crime. And like, he says it in a way that you know it's not going to make his day, but it'll just make it a little better, you know? Yeah. To take a bunch of humans. It'll take lives. the edge off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sandra Locke gets some good tough guy lines in this movie, too. Like, there's the scene where her car is surrounded by, like, just a bunch of the, the sort of punks that you only see in movies where they're just like, hoo, 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 hoo. like, hey, like in a Joel Schumacher Batman <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah, they're just like, <laughs> like, galoots. they're the punks from Cobra then, uh, that were playing the music on the jukebox. Literally, it's like the exactly. same group. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a guy from Star Trek Four who was also in San Francisco. Uh, she, she's like, uh, do you need a lift? And the guy's like, yeah, that'd be cool, baby mama. And then she's like, why don't you stick a jack up your ass? And speeds off. It's like, what a line. Uh, a, a dirty Harry killing Spock for jumping in that whale tank. <laughs> Just doming it. <laughs> yeah. God damn it, Callahan, that whale's been around since the Cretaceous period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, like, okay, so eventually, like, you know, it's just like, we, it, we're really treated to, like, a day in the life, a day in the shitty life of Carrie Callahan, where he just, like, uh, just just taking life and getting and, and having being shit on for keeping the city of San Francisco safe. And then eventually like, you know, he he's called to the homicide scene of the, uh, the Sandra Locke killing that we saw in, in the, in the beginning of the movie. And we get one of my, one of my, fa- my favorite, uh, people say, go ahead, make my day. But one of my, fa- probably my favorite, uh, Clint Eastwood one liner of all time is when he berates the, uh, fellow like slob like cop who's like, you know, looking at a dead body, like, you know, just oh, uh, guzzling a hot dog. He's just glizzy <laughs> gulping. And then like, yeah. he's just like, aren't you sick of it, Harry? And he's like, 
no, I'm not sick of the shootings, the knifings, the beatings, old ladies being bashed in the head for their social security checks, teachers thrown from fourth floor windows because they don't give A's. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I love the idea of, yeah, teachers are being killed because they're not giving their students good enough grades. It's very, that, that's from the Lil Harry prequel series where it was him as a school child murdering classmates for being rude to It's teachers. very like grandpa who just read something like that in the New York Post type like yeah. air. Yeah. Speaking of, there's a scene in this movie where he commandeers a short bus full yes. of retirees like, and drives them Okay, around. we have to talk about that when it comes because that's like so emblematic of his like worldview, I feel like. but It's, it's the experience of the audience watching yes, the movie. Yeah. Just like Seven seventy-two-year-olds being like, Wee-hee. yeah, kick their kick their ass, <laughs> and like, but you know, the, the the point is like, you know, Harry Harry comes at just another it's another fresh homicide scene. It's just every dirty job once again, and he's been he's more jaded than usual. He's tired of of kids uh, throwing teachers out of windows for you know not letting them go to recess. But he says what he's what I'm really sick of is the way you stuff your face with those hot dogs. He goes, no one. I mean, no one puts ketchup on a hot dog, and I'm like, that's the that's one of the that's one of the hardest burns ever in a movie. That's <laughs> like some guys just, Bourdain, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, you from Chicago or something? It's like really crazy. Like, it really people gives do all the time. It reminds me of <laughs> yeah. like, um, like uh, Stallone eating pizza with a fork and knife in that one. I can't remember what movie that's in. Oh, it's I, Scissors. Oh yes, yeah, Scissors in Cobra, in Cobra yeah, yeah. when he comes home and there's a gun in the pizza. It's box. like so like. <laughs> Or like the Ben the Ben Stiller anecdote where he's like, I was talking to like Tom Cruise and I was like, it must be hard to be so so famous. And he's like, yeah, I can't even go to the ravioli store by myself. <laughs> Just like <laughs> taking a guess at what normal people do. <laughs> like, yeah, like like chat GPT, yeah. like doing the three dots and then ravioli store. <laughs> uh, and again, like, you know, uh, Harry's hassled by the, the the stupid police commissioner who like keeps telling him he's like it's a new day Harry it's a whole new ball game you can't just go around killing people anymore but you know and, and then we and then like, for the first time in like a half an hour like you said after he kills mob leader Frank Pentangeli oh sorry Frank Pentagliani for Pentangeli oh, fuck what how do you say his name Pentangeli Godfather Pentangeli Frankie Pentangeli you're doing anti Italian American <laughs> yeah. racism where you're adding too many values yeah vowels. <laughs> Uh, so like, yeah, like, uh, he, he just walks into his like daughter on the day of his daughter's wedding and confronts him with like the supposedly like, uh, like, um, evidence compiled by one of his murder victims against him, you know, some prostitute that was killed and tortured because she was going to testify against the crime boss. And, you know, he gives him a heart attack in front of his family. (laughs) (laughs) But then we begin to follow, uh, Sandra Locke. And we see that she's she's uh, her work is being displayed in a gallery. She's a painter, but you know her her dark visions are so anguished and intense. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, uh, we then we then see her ch- checking in on her sister, who's in a hospital and in like a totally catatonic state that she's not coming out of. And uh, she tells her like you know comatose sister that like I saw one of them the other day. He just walked up to me on the street and I like stalked him, followed him, bought a gun, and then let him pick me up from a bar and I killed him. And so, like, you know, we're so beginning to see some of her backstory there. And then, like, then from that sort of rather harrowing scene of Sandra Locke confessing 
the fact that she just executed someone to her catatonic sister. We then go to like just another typical night in the life of Dirty Harry. He just like six guys pile out of a car, all of whom look like Dennis Franz, and spray him with Uzi fire. Yeah. It's like, it's like oh they, boy, this again. He's getting attacked by 70s porn stars left and right. Like literally the 70s porn star union is after him. And it's like crazy because like the Sandra Locke scene is actually like, it's like one shot basically and it's really beautifully shot like his framing and stuff he's like genuinely a really good director he has like there are certain shots in this movie where it's like wow that's really beautiful like he knows what he's doing visually and then there are scenes like the next scene where you can tell like it's so dark (laughs) it's like literally you can barely (laughs) see anything yeah but it still rocks. It's still the so he gets he's getting sprayed with bullets. He escapes kind of to a roof slash like walkway type area. And the bad guys are like creeping along the walkway after they have a big shootout. They have like an armored car. You know, he, he creeps. They're creeping onto the walkway to look for him. And they see like all these barrels and they're like, he can't be in the barrels. And then they see like a big box, <laughs> like like Metal Gear Solid. And they just like open up, like empty their whole magazines into this big like box. And then he like pops out of one of the barrels, literally like a video game, and just kills them all. <laughs> Time crisis. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is a nice, it, it kind of throws ahead to the recent Cry Macho where Clint is at a cockfight that gets oh, yeah. broken up. And the 90 year old Clint Eastwood just very slowly goes to stand behind yes, some boxes. He, he's, he's crouching John, behind boxes. That scene that killed me. That scene so killed sad. me in Cry Macho when he's like, he, he does like, yeah, he, he doesn't, he does like a sort of like a stealth mission just by standing behind a crate. As the Mexican police yeah, raid a he, cockfight, he, he's like a T Rex. Where if he doesn't move, nobody can yeah, see. Yeah, it's him. literally like Metal Gear Solid rules. Where like if you go into the next room, it resets the guards. Like I do want to say with this whole plotline too, it's like I kind of give credence to the like yellow-bellied San Francisco police chief because at this time, like ninety-nine percent of crime in the Bay Area is just people trying to murder Dirty Harry. Yeah. <laughs> Just, just like spraying him with like World War II British paint guns on every corner. <laughs> but you know, no one can no one can get to him. You know, they they, they keep trying. They just keep trying. Um, so like once again, once again, yet another mass shooting has happened. Another another six bodies chalked up on the streets of San Francisco, thanks to Dirty Harry. And then they're like, okay, damn it, like you're you're on forced leave. And in one of my other favorite scenes in the movie, he's like, oh damn, I got time on my hands now. What do I do? He goes to the park and tries out a new gun, the 44 <laughs> Auto Mag. <laughs> it's it, it's so crazy because he gets placed on forced leave twice in a row in this. It's it's so bizarre. Like they re they repeat his plot line like twice before he gets into the main plot line and then we're 45 minutes into the movie. It's the only way to get him to a new location where the only ideas he has for a holiday are jogging slowly and <laughs> drinking by himself. <laughs> And firing a and gun then, um, at Target. Yeah. So yeah. we get we get we get to see for the first time ever the new the, like the the new and improved. This is like you know like oh this is what all the dirty Harry heads are waiting. You know like when it, when the trailer was first announced, they were like, are we going to get to see the forty four auto mag? Yes, yes, viewer, you will see the fully auto forty four magnum that uh, Harry tries out. And then like he's approached by his friend Horace. Uh, Horace is another detective. Uh, Horace is played by the actor Albert Popwell who was also in the original Dirty Harry as one of the punks that Dirty Harry asks if he feels lucky to. 
So like, I guess, you know, it's like same actor, but like in this time he's a cop, not a punk. And he sort of approaches Dirty Harry, who's uh, playing with guns by taking a shotgun out of his, his car, loading it and sort of like sneaking up on him like Elmer <laughs> Fudd. And then you're like, oh, wait, they're friends. Yeah. It's not just the black guy that Kirlin Eastwood is going to kill. I think that he's in The Enforcer, too, the previous one. Like, I think, it, I don't know if it's one of those things where they just use the same actor as a nod in every movie. But he's in, like, three or four Dirty Harry movies and always plays different characters, which, you know, I don't think anyone who's watching these has any sense of continuity or remembers anything about it. Uh, but it is weird when you watch, like, three of them back it, to back. It's like, uh, that makes me feel a little, like, better about it because, like, otherwise it's it really is, like, Oh, a black a black guy. What's gonna happen? Oh no, he's he's <laughs> yeah. a good one. <laughs> Literally is how it's played. But yeah. if it's like a, he still points a gun yeah, right yeah. in his face, but in a nice he, like, way. Spins around and points this huge gun straight in Horace's face, and he's like, "Hey, Horace, how's it going? <laughs> good to see you, you son of a bitch." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And like it's like uh, after that a bit bit of levity, uh, we're treated again to the the Sandra Locke story, where she has um, she's like already kind of on vacation. She's uh, dra- driven up the coast. She's she's working to restore a, st- a historic carousel in this like uh, pleasant Northern California beach town, and like you know the woman who's hired her to uh, uh, to like repaint this carousel says, "It must make you so satisfied to make old ugly things right again." And then she says in this very like haunting flat affect, yes, sometimes it does. And then she walks on the beach and has like a trauma flashback, which again is like so jarring considering how absolutely goofball mode, like everything with Clint Eastwood is in the first half of this movie. And then she has this like horrible flashback where we see what happened to her and her sister, which is this like brutal gang rape of both of them that happened years ago, like at, at this like carnival on the beach. And again, it's just sort of like what, like what, what am I watching here? This like the, the, this rape scene was just so sickening and terrifying. Yeah, it's so then, well like, done. And then the the next scene that we see is like Clint Eastwood getting into another car chase shootout <laughs> with like another group of young punks that is like you know the Keystone Cops, Buster Keaton style spoofs. This is classic A plot B plot yes. filmmaking. <laughs> you know, you know? It's literally. It's it like cuts. how do you show me a scene that's that disturbing and then just like move on from it and like. It, it's like so well done, like the looping of all the shots, like the music there because there's like the carnival music. There's the screams of everyone on the roller coasters. There's the screams of the of Sandra Locke and her sister. And then there's the music of the jukebox, which they turn on to like drown out the or the boombox to like drown out the sounds. And it's like so like this like insane, like horrifying collage of all these like of the people having fun at the carnival and, you know, Sandra Locke and her sister getting brutally attacked and raped by the bad guys. And then it cuts to literally the guy from the elevator in the first scene. Like, he might as well be lighting a stick of cartoon dynamite and being like, <laughs> I'll show you who's dog shit. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, like, this is like, did, did, okay, like, the, the young punks from the original scene who got their case dismissed, did they just not read the San Francisco Chronicle or something? They're like, hey, guys, it's Saturday night. What are we going to do? 
let's fuck with that awful homicide detective who tried to jam us up. And then they were like, didn't you see the headlines? Like, Dirty Harry Callahan kills six men. And, and these guys are mafia guys who are like trained killers. These dudes just try to roll up with him and hit his car with a two by four on the highway and throw like Molotov cocktails into his car. They, like, they throw a Molotov cocktail like into the, uh, into the passenger seat and it's just sitting there. And the entire back of Clint Eastwood's car is on fire. And he's just driving it. <laughs> he's driving a That's car. That's why he likes it. <laughs> he's driving a hot That's car. That's how he likes his car to be. <laughs> he, he drives a hot car to the end of the pier, gets out and takes the un, the unbroken Molotov, and they're driving towards him, and he just chucks it and throws it at their windshield. It explodes. They drive straight off the pier into the drink and are all killed. Yeah. <laughs> just oh the, and then once again... The commission shows up and they're like, God damn it, Harry, what the hell is wrong with you? We told the you to keep a low my ass again. Third time it's it happened. It cost the peer authorities $45 to dredge that car out of the ocean. <laughs> but yeah, this is also a movie too, I got to say, where it'll break like the most tense scenes of violence or even kind of like relatively well handled romantic scenes with just like close up shots of a dog's balls yeah. <laughs> of a dog yeah. farting yeah. literally a close up of a dog yeah, farting. Do- yeah. A-, a dog <laughs> farting out of its ass yeah <laughs> and so after that it cuts to the car being dredged out of the lake and the guy's like god damn it harry and then he's like all right but in all seriousness the main plot's going on in this in this town a couple hours away so we need you to go there and yeah, so- uh start the movie <laughs> yeah like they, they they connect the original cock shot homicide victim to uh this this small seaside town and they're like harry like you know you won't take vacation but like we're gonna give you this assignment like drive up the coast and see what background you can dig up on our homicide victim and he's like uh whatever and then like within 10 seconds of him arriving in this seaside town he witnesses an armed robbery and gets involved in a foot and then shark car chase where he commandeers as you said a short bus of senior citizens to chase down this guy who's stolen a motorcycle and yeah these old people are loving it yeah they're like clapping and like waving dollar bills at him <laughs> yeah, and stuff and like that so from sick. the back seat and it's like that's his audience in like a few years yeah like, it's like... exactly yeah and I but he but yeah then the the, the 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 chief there too is like we'll have none of it like immediately marks him as trouble and yeah says, he says uh, i don't the, like you in san francisco we don't like you here there's like the, five the, the, the locals yeah the local stupid police chief is played by pat hingle another longtime clint eastwood collaborator i believe he was in the gauntlet and uh hang em high and he's probably best known for uh, being Commissioner Gordon in the Tim Burton Batman movies. But he's like, yeah, we, he, he's a different vision. He's a different version because he's like the local Rube sheriff, and he he's not mad at he's not mad at Harry for playing not playing by the rules and getting results. He's just like, I don't want a hotshot big city cop telling me how to do my job in our nice small town. He's like, we we don't solve crime around here, Callahan. This is a vacation <laughs> spot. He's like, we got pickpockets to deal with. <laughs> we got, you know, we got uh, Morgan's to deal with <laughs> after after causing more violence in this small seaside town than they've ever experienced in the town's entire existence he decides to retire to <laughs> in his one mot- minute yeah it's retired to his motel room <laughs> in which his friend horace from earlier has gifted him a bulldog another absolutely yeah. like just baffling uh intervention in this movie where now he has a, a, a dog friend that tails him around for the entire second half of the movie that he calls meathead and has to as you, as you said like yeah we, uh, uh sorry john as you said uh we're just treated to shots of this dog's balls constantly mm-hmm. 
And he's got a nice set of balls. I don't yeah, know. He's he's um he's really flexing his working with animals chops as he, he because back in the you know, he's I think he's in two movies with monkeys, right? Isn't he? The and, any which way you <laughs> yeah, loose yeah. and any which way you can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he worked with a talking mule in the nineteen fifties. He was in one of those movies called like Gary the Mule Goes to the Military or something like that. <laughs> uh so basically, like now, our our two principal leads, the two movies that are being depicted here, have now sort of uh, joined on the same on the same plot line in the town of San Paolo, California, and you know Sandra Locke is sort of she's she's um, pursuing her own sort of investigations slash executions of this like you know uh, a gang of really seedy and horrible townies that raped her and her sister years ago, and then like I just all the like all the scenes of Sandra Locke like. It's, I think it's a really good performance in this movie. Like her eye, like her eyes, she looks so ghostly and haunted. Yeah. And just sort of like depersonalized and like, you know, sort of like disassociated from everything around her. And the scenes where she like tracks down these like gross townies and executes them are like really hard to watch. Mm-hmm. There's some like really uh, nasty headshots in this movie of her just just executing these guys in cold blood. Yeah, and her signature, she shoots him in the head and the dick and balls at the same yeah. time. So I, that's I, how they know it's all the same person. A dick but first, I agree on her performance. Head, yeah. Right, right. But her <laughs> performance, I agree, is great. Like, she has this kind of, like, dead-to-the-world snappy quality that's really great. Like, I think this and Bronco Billy are, like, the films that I like her in the most. And it makes so much sense that she is attracted to dirty Harry as this like paragon of vigilante power that can still operate within the law. And then to him, she's just some lady that he saw one day, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. His dog like knocks her off a bike and like, that's sort of how they meet. And and she's, she's very mad at him, but he's like, Oh, let me make it up to you. I'll buy you a drink. (laughs) But yeah, like, uh, then like eventually she realizes that like he, like he takes her out for a drink and she tells him one of my favorite lines. She goes, she goes, he goes, what do you do? And she goes, I paint. And he goes, what? Houses? Cars? <laughs> <laughs> Doors? Windows? <the> streets? <laughs> yeah. No, carousel horses, you idiots. <laughs> and like, you know, and then like, like it, it, as they're both of their investigating kind of the same thing, we, we like, we begin to learn that these like disgusting evil townies or sort of like what one of her attackers was like the the Pat Hingle character, like the the stupid police chief. It was like uh, his son was involved in this brutal attack, so he sort of covered it up and has been like you know allowing these these sickos, including the uh, very conspicuous inclusion of like this the classic stock Eastwood character, evil bitch, who in this woman <laughs> yeah, yeah. is. Is, I was going to call her ugly woman. Yeah, ugly woman who <laughs> I, is, shall we say, queer coded. I wrote evil yeah. Barbara Streisand in my notes. And I, yeah. she, um, the several characters refer to her as the lesbo in this. And I was loving her. She's like so gross and evil and just like seedy. And like you see in all the pictures of because Clint is realizing that all the people who were involved in this gang rape are in this picture on the chief's on the wall of the chief's office and she's one of the people and he asks one of the cops like who's this lady because he saw her in a bar the night before and she tried to pick him up and he like literally kicks her ass um like spins her around and kicks her in the ass and then she falls over and um the guy's like oh that's just 
the lesbo. I can't even remember what her name is, like Ray or something. And um, then we are treated to a scene of her and the other truly despicable character of yeah, um, played this by game. Pat, a guy named Pat Drake, who I think he was in Beverly Hills Cop and like a few other movies. But man, oh man, he is really something as like a truly repellent and disgusting villain, like the head rapist who sort mm-hmm. of comes back to town because he's been made aware that some people are asking questions. It feels like it's like the anniversary of the assault and everyone's like regathering to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, or it's something truly, like it's bizarre. And there's, um, you know, another guy who's like um, the character from the Sopranos who has the sporting goods store who tries to kill himself. And then Tony takes all his money. Oh, Robert, yeah, Patrick. Robert Patrick in the Sopranos is yeah. like an, the same exact guy, but he gets killed by um, Sandra Locke and, um, you know, things start ramping up. We've got um, Clint investigating, looking into it. And um, Sandra Locke also at the when she's getting a drink with him, basically seduces him by saying um, an insane like aside about um justice and i actually wrote it down hang on let me find it in your manifesto yeah it's in my manifesto <laughs> <laughs> oh this is a day of lapsed responsibilities defeated justice today an eye for an eye only means if you're caught and even then it's an indefinite postponement or let's settle out of court and she's like but you wouldn't get that <laughs> dirty harry's like well yeah you'd be surprised <laughs> Yeah, I have more confirmed kills than like the U.S. military in the Second World War. (laughs) But the one thing I love about their dynamic beyond the fact that it like draws on their real world chemistry, I guess, uh, is that like in every other Dirty Harry movie, it's like he has to get some like dorky partner who's either a woman or Latino or something that he doesn't really cotton to. And they temper his vigilante instincts and in this they both just like enable each other and they love the fact that they're they love to kill people uh, extrajudiciously <laughs> it's so sick he really lets his freak flag fly <laughs> most of the skirts <laughs> i go on date with are big fans of the rights of criminals but i can tell you're different <laughs> <laughs> you've never heard of due process have you? why no <laughs> um so like yeah the head the head rapist uh i'm sorry paul drake is his name and he's so evil and gross in this movie eventually uh like for some indeterminate reason um uh harry's friend horace shows up and goes to his motel room but is sort of assaulted and killed by these uh evil townies but he does bring clint his uh 44 auto mag which will come into play later in the movie but uh also like he (laughs) He also punches the ugly woman character dead in the face with a closed fist at one point. But that's right before Sandra Locke just walks into the room after he left and executes her in like, you know, really brutal fashion. Like uh, she knows it's going to happen. And I like that the 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 evil woman gets to make sure to take a sip of Cora's banquet as her little last meal. <laughs> but she goes, how's your slut sister? And then Sandra Locke just she just oh, blues yeah. just a hole right in the forehead. Like I said, there's some really good uh, headshot work in this movie. Uh, like this, all this all builds to the classic uh, carnival movie climax, like a a carnival carousel style movie uh, climax in which, like, you know, like uh, the the head bad guy who's like the only one left, and like his two goons, 
Like they they chase Sandra Locke around. They're gonna like a, a you know abuse and kill her again, and like uh, she gets away from them. And then like there's has so you talked about like the truly uh, like when he wants to turn it on like the truly iconic. Uh, image making that he does in this movie is when he shows up at the end of the pier in total silhouette with just the 44 yeah. mag and it's just like this this shadowy figure and they all stop and they're like what and he, they just let him walk up to them so he's like five <laughs> yards away from them and then he shoots like two of the guys like through a brick wall or something like the gun is just yeah. that powerful <laughs> And there's just like this like ribbon of light around him. Yeah. And he's like, well, it's like when Freddy Krueger is walking uh, through the backyard in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, just totally sinister and badass. It's so it's sick. awesome. It's it, it's a great shot of a man and his gun. And then like uh, Paul Drake, like he's got Sandra Locke and he's like, he's like, what do you think? Like, I'm going to let her go, pig. Like, it's just that it just be me and you. And then, like, you know, he's on top of a roller coaster. <laughs> Harry's in the bottom. And then Sandra Locke, like, wrestles herself away. His body is prone. And then Clint blows him away with magnum force. And he shoots him off of the roller coaster, falls, like, 30 feet through glass, and then is impaled on one of the carousel horses in classic movie overkill. Mm -hmm. That's what she was doing when she was refinishing the horses, <laughs> is putting like deadly blades on it. She's like a Vincent Price character in a Hammer horror movie. It's <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> putting spinning blades on carousel all the horses. Carousel of carnage. Yeah. yeah, I was I was really upset when I saw that part because that's a lot more restoration work she's going to have to do on that carousel. <laughs> if you charge by the hour, it's not oh, so bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, it basically they're like walking out and she's like, so are you going to handcuff me for all the murders I did? And then um, another cop walks up and is like, Sheriff, we found this gun with the killer and it matches all the other murders that were done. <laughs> and he's like, well. I guess that squares it then. <laughs> because cops are stupid. As long as the ballistics match, there's no motive or anything yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. sense whatsoever. Oh, no, no. It's like, oh, he's probably just murdering all his best friends and destroying their penises and testicles for fun. Anyways. I mean, that guy was a real sicko, though. He was a real, real slime bag. He was a real, real criminal scum. And, you know. Uh, oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> I believe at one point, uh, Pat Hingle's character, when he's like confessing, uh, confessing to Sandra Locke that like, uh, like his son, like he, he covered this up for his son. And he was like, I should have punished him along with the other filth. And now I can't take it back. Well, he dies for that. But, uh, but the criminal filth are punished in this movie. And yeah, and it's just like the, the thing at the end where like Harry sort of, he finds himself and he gets his he gets his groove back with some extrajudicial murder, but it's like in, in recognizing like the movie, like, you know, in, in its ridiculous, like a plot, B plot structure, it really does contrast the rather sickening, but justified crime or like, you know, in some sense, justified crimes of Sandra Locke with what Clint Eastwood has been doing as his dirty carrier character for three movies now, which is just, yeah. Hey, like there are evil people. You, what do you want from me? Like, <laughs> you got to kill him. Yeah. I also want to say that like, this is like Eastwood getting his groove back too. Cause I think like before this, he made honky tonk man where he plays like an alcoholic honky tonk guitars being driven around the South by his nephew in the depression era. And it's like kind of a tender movie that he made with his own son, but it made like $0. Uh, and this was like the most profitable dirty Harry movie of all five of them. So 
I think Clint really knows how to put asses in the seats when he wants to, you know, like he saw that Sandra Locke script and he's like, what this needs is me killing more people. And then we <laughs> hook up and kill a few people together. And then that's the movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, but, uh, but I think why, why it is such an interesting dirty Harry movie is like I said, the wildly mismatched tones in this movie between uh, cartoonish goofball comedy violence and truly stomach turning and like violence that makes you, uh, a question whether any violence of any kind is morally justified, no matter how terrible uh, the revenge or like criminal act that it's atoning for is. And like, I, I have to think that that's intentional in some way. I mean, it's, it, it makes for a bizarre viewing experience, but I think a very interesting one. I, and I also think for like the presumed reactionary male, dirty, hairy viewer, there's a lot of like uh, testicle and penis violence that is especially uncomfortable yeah like don't get me wrong i i i think we should kill rapists but uh shooting their dick <laughs> oh, yeah. balls off i mean like but that go that's that goes too far yeah <laughs> no yeah i i i think my favorite moment i think the most exemplary moment is the scene where it's basically like where they're on their date and it's basically like the scene from heat um where pacino and de niro meet but instead of it's like if the scene from Heat was Pacino and De Niro being like, yeah, I'm going to go do some crimes. And Pacino was like, oh, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> and then just like <laughs> helped him do the crimes. It's really like it's it's a very strange movie because the two the, there's three ideologies going on. There's like Clint and Sandra Locke's characters who are like, you got to do vengeance. You got to like you know, punish people. It's, you know, it's a rough world. You got to defend yourself. Then there's the police, which are, who are basically like, you know, don't rock the boat. Let's bust some pickpockets. Um, you know, <laughs> and not only ineffectual as they usually are in the dirty Harry movies, but actively complicit yeah. in crime. Yeah. And yeah. In this no, one. truly. <laughs> and then there's Mickey, the psycho who's like, you got to murder and rape everyone. <laughs> it's like those are the three types. Those are the three ideologies. Three types of dudes. That were, yeah, the three types of dudes. And we're presented with like, you know, um, a beautiful portrait of this wonderful world of Dirty Harry. Uh, again, I think it's telling that Clint thinks that like nobody like because, again, this script came as like a Sandra Locke rape revenge vehicle. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, this is great, but no one will care about it unless it is explicit that w the violence that she's doing is condoned by dirty. Hair. So let's put him in the movie. And <laughs> but like, I say, I say to Will that like this movie reminds me of like the late Hellraiser movies where it's like, they get a script that's about like a haunted computer. And then they're like, Oh, we'll just put pinhead in it. He comes out of the computer at the end. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, but it has to be your point. Like uh, the scene where they go on a date, it, it it would be like the equivalent of the scene in Heat between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro where they, they share this like meaningful connection that they have where like the, both, both sides are working against each other but together at the same time. And it would be like that scene if it were broken up by a waiter approaching Al Pacino and going, uh, excuse me, your dog's giant balls are knocking over <laughs> glasses. <laughs> your dog just pissed and shit all over my balls. <laughs> <laughs> We, we also get a lot of uses of Dirty Harry's uh, secondary catchphrase in this, where he just goes, swell, <laughs> when, he, when he doesn't like the way something is going. <laughs> Which is pretty much all the time. 
every day, yeah. every minute of his waking life. Mm-hmm. My favorite um, Dirty Harry quote in this is when he finds his best friend Horace dead in his hotel room, throat slit. He just says, shit, man. <laughs> it's such a sick line read. <laughs> same thing like three o'clock i get backlit and i'll be on like a zoom call with someone and just look like a fucking shadow figure at the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sleep paralysis demon joining us now to discuss <laughs> the films of clint eastwood hi <laughs> this is fun though man it's replicating the experience of me watching both these movies back to back friday night and just yeah. getting baked alone and yep. chuckling for three hours straight <laughs> all right Okay, so uh, going from uh, 1983's Sudden Impact, we now talk about 1984's Tightrope. The killer is a Caucasian, blood type O, about in his mid-40s. Any suspects? 120,000 of them. Anything you'd like me to tell the mayor? Yeah, he's one of them. Do you investigate many sexual crimes? Why? I was wondering if they've had any effect on you. A cop on the edge. Clint Eastwood. Tightrope. Which, uh, the first thing you need to mention about this movie is that technically uh, the writer and Clint's friend and collaborator Richard Tuggle is the guy who gets the director's credit on this movie. He wrote the screenplay for Escape from Alcatraz and He'd worked with Clint on a number of other projects, I believe. But uh, I think this was the first movie that he ever directed, and he gets the director's credit. But everything you will read about this movie uh, confirms that Clint Eastwood basically directed the whole thing. And he directed it because Tuggle was working too slow. (laughs) He wasn't working (laughs) at the breakneck Clint pace. But I I do have this uh, great little tidbit from the IMDb trivia page for this movie. It says here, writer and director Richard Tuggle had a habit of not wearing any underwear in muggy New Orleans, Louisiana. One day, standing up on a camera truck, Clint Eastwood noticed that Tuggle's private parts were hanging out of his shorts. In front of everybody, he ordered Tuggle to go back to his trailer and put on some underwear, pronto. (laughs) So this is, once again, this is the master exerting control over any film set he's on. If you think you're Mm -hmm. a director who can just have your balls sticking out of your shorts... It's not going to fly on Mr. Eastwood's it's, it's movie His fucking set. daughter's on this set, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's true. true. Yeah. I, I got I to say, my favorite anecdote about like the Eastwood style of only doing like one and a half takes of any scene is when they made that movie Invictus, where Matt Damon plays like a South African rugby guy. He had this great story once where he's like doing the accent and then he turns to Clint after the first take. He's like, was that good? Was my accent okay and everything? And Clint just goes, ah, let's just keep moving. You want to waste everybody's time? And then they just like <laughs> made the movie. And then subsequently, 10 years later, that was rated the worst South African accent in a movie by South Africa magazine. <laughs> but yeah, it's like when they say that like Richard Tuggle was taking too long making the movie, they mean that he did like a normal. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I have friends who work in the industry and like, as like on the cruise and stuff. And Clint is apparently legendary for being literally the best director to work for because he'll, he'll have you like wrapped 
in like five hours and then you have the rest of the day you could just do whatever yeah and according i think it's tom hanks said like he never says action he just says okay whenever whatever you want to do and then instead of saying cut he just would be like that's enough of that <laughs> like as if he's embarrassed to watch people act it's like it reminds me peter bogdanovich once said um he never gets any coverage for like his movies and someone was like why don't you get any coverage and he said i would just end up using it and i love that right. i love that quote <laughs> So uh, the movie begins in exactly the same way Sudden Impact did. It's just like a nighttime helicopter shot of New Orleans, the Big Easy. And has so, like you said, it's this very, like, funky, like, SNL music. Like, it's just like, <laughs> live from New Orleans, Louisiana, the sex crimes capital of the United States. <laughs> it's tightrope. Tonight, you'll be... <laughs> <laughs> featuring, featuring Allison Eastwood introducing <laughs> Allison Eastwood <laughs> and your host Clint Eastwood yeah. also Clint is an active and enthusiastic member of Houdat Nation in this movie like yeah. he's wearing New Orleans Saints Saint gear. gear in every other scene <laughs> Tonight's film, based on the real-life rapes and murders of the Golden State Killer. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, like, yeah, and this movie opens. It's um, some gals are celebrating a birthday party. So it's time, but, you know, the party's over. So it's time for one of them to walk home alone at night through the French Quarter. And then uh, in a repeated motif in this movie, it's like, you know, you know the killer's around when you see his sneakers. When you see those Puma yeah. sneakers and this woman is like, you know, a shadow walking behind her, um, you know, like she's, she feels she's being stalked. But like, oh, wait, there's a cop there to help her. His face is in shadow. But you know what? His voice sounds strangely similar to Clint Eastwood's. But the camera pans down to his shoes. They're the Pumas. They're the evil murderer sneakers. So Not we know something bad has happened to her. I will say that he could have solved this crime a lot earlier if anyone would have just clocked it and been like, yeah, the killer is wearing like size 45 yeah. banana yellow bowling <laughs> shoes, <laughs> which ends up becoming a plot point like later in the movie. But it's so conspicuous. Well, yeah, because he goes to this factory and everyone there is wearing the same insane shoes. But um, basically, I was really confused in this scene until just now. I thought he was peeing his pants during this because he's like standing straddling like a drainage like thing in the street and like water is going down and I really thought he was like peeing his pants because he was so excited to see like a lady but I guess not I guess that was just like rain running down like this like drainage, yeah. this like gutter. The, the film slow plays its various like kinky perversions. Yeah, you, know, you can't have a guy pissing his <laughs> pants. And a guy pissing his pants. Scene one. <laughs> so, uh, and then okay, then we're introduced to uh, to Clint uh, John, as you said, a proud member of Houdat Nation. He's playing a little little street football with his two daughters. He's rocking like the the Saints gear, and they find a stray dog. And his daughters are like, oh, dad, can we keep him? And he's like, uh, well, maybe we should uh, give him to the pound. And then it just cuts to the next scene. And like they've already cleaned up the dog and have fed it. And it's one of like six dogs that they have in their house. And I like this because like we, we immediately see Clint Eastwood's character in this movie, Detective Wes Block. And it's just like he looks exactly like Dirty Harry. He sounds like Dirty Harry. He dresses like Dirty Harry. But like it, it, it's foregrounding, like in the when you introduce this character, that he is in every way like Dirty Harry, but completely different in every respect. And like Clint, like they they give you a hint of that because dogs, children, and women like him. 
and trust him, which is like the exact opposite of Dirty Harry. Like, every, Dirty Harry is hated by everyone. Dogs bark at him like Richard III when he walks down the street. But Detective Wes Block in this movie is friend to women, children, and pets of all kind. He's a family man. Yeah, and it, it also, like, I mean, there's obviously points where his job interferes with his ability. I think he's trying to take his daughters to a Saints game at one point. Yeah. Uh, and gets called into work. But, like, you do get the sense that this isn't some, like, deadbeat, hungover dad. And that he's actually, like, putting in the effort and his kids like mm-hmm. him. Uh, which I think is kind of distinct from, like, the cliche of, you know, the deadbeat cop who's struggling to live between these two worlds. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle not to bring his work home with him in this movie. But that's why he usually works out of the house um, having sex with multiple witnesses to a homicide. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and also just like, like the tone of this movie is very different because like I mean it's, it's, a, it's about a homicide investigation into a series of like sexually motivated murders but this is really more of like a kind of like a, a psychological thriller but also like a real police procedural. You know it's like it's about an actual investigation it's not just about like him going out and getting attacked by people and then turning the streets of New Orleans into a shooting gallery. And it's also very conspicuous that like Wes Block I think he has a gun in his hand in like maybe one scene of this movie and I don't think he ever even fires his, his, his uh, service weapon in the line of duty in this film at all. He's like he really is more of like an actual police officer and like and, and cracking the case it is about you know, interviewing witnesses and people like known to the, the homicide victim. And in this case, having kinky sex with all of them. Yeah. I was going to say like the, basically the plot is that like he finds a clue inside a different woman's pussy every 20 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> I, I really, I loved this movie. It, it was like so, so much. I really like it a lot better than sudden impact because like it really does throw you for a loop to see Clint Eastwood when he's um, after he finds the first woman dead and he is going to interrogate her friend who's a fellow lady of the night and she like beckons him into her um apartment and like undoes his tie and is like you know she was really into cops and then clint is like oh yeah and you're like oh he's about to like reject her so hard and he doesn't. He gets his dick sucked right there. <laughs> it's like, yep. which yeah. it will not be the first time that will not be the last time that happens. Like throughout the film, it's like shocking. No, yeah, it's just shocking. Well, there's also the scene where he goes to a sex club where it's like women wrestling in oil with like a little person referee. And as a viewer, you're like, oh, he's on the case. This has something to do with it. And it's like, oh, no, he's just there yeah. enjoying <laughs> it because this is what he likes to he's do. He's just there because like yeah. his that's like his girl that's um, wrestling. <laughs> Literally, this yeah, girl exactly. that he met earlier. This is just where he yeah. goes. Yeah. It's like cheers when he walks in. Everyone knows <laughs> his like, name. Hey, it's, hey, it's there's another great moment where he's like um gets this note from the killer that's like um you know oh i'm gonna kill again and then he turns it around it says sam's on the back and dan hedaya who plays like the other detective like his, like, his partner like the other yeah. detective yeah um he's like what's sam's and it just shows a close-up of clint's face and i was just grinning like Oh, this motherfucker knows where Sam's is. He's like, he's yeah. about to head there right now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Cut Sam yeah. at like an S and M club called Sam's. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, Clint, Clint is a, uh, a frequent visitor to like many, many of the French quarters, uh, seediest brothels and flesh dungeons and sleaze pits throughout this movie. Um, so, like, uh, you know, like, uh, we, we meet his daughters, uh, one of whom is played by his real life daughter, Allison Eastwood. We meet Dan Hedaya, who's like, um, you know, his partner, like another detective working on the case. But, like, you know, he, he, they don't, it, it, him and Dan Hedaya really don't seem to have much of a relationship in this movie. Like, Dan Hedaya is just there to, like, be like, you know, sitting with like a ruffled tie and like, you know, ugly sport coat and just saying like, oh, the fibers match from two crime scenes. Like he's just there to kind of like give you the forensic details and move the plot along. But the only other character that really matters is uh, the rape crisis counselor and community activist played by Genevieve Bujold. Uh, I know her mainly from playing the lead in David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers as the uh, love interest. Palma's obsession. Yeah, She's oh, yeah, the love yeah. Interest yes. in. yeah. <laughs> uh, and a great Canadian. But yeah, she basically teaches this like King of the Hill, like that's my purse, I don't know you <laughs> style like uh, yeah, yeah, self-defense yeah. class for women. <laughs> I, I saw that and I was like, oh, this is like, um, there can't be real classes like this with a dummy that looks this ridiculous. And like, yeah, like a a, the, yeah, a dummy with like a bucket for a head and 40 women lined up like it's like North Korea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Step away from my purse. <laughs> really? No, and, no, no. Yeah. And, and God, the like, dummy like, has... The he visits her, the dummy t- has tennis balls for testicles. Yeah, and they come out. They get removed when you kick it hard enough. Like It's like crazy. Yeah. Well, that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> So like yeah, in in the course of uh, investigating this case, uh, you mentioned like uh, they realized that the fir- the first victim, the first homicide victim, uh, uh, was a prostitute, and like he goes to the uh, the the brothel where she, where she works, and then is like you know pro- as you already mentioned, Tessa is propositioned by her friend and coworker, and he says to her, he says to her, um, <laughs> I heard you like working as a sandwich with her, one on top, one on the bottom, you liked it, didn't you? And then, and then he goes, and he goes, uh, what happened to the rest of the sandwich? And he goes, someone ate it. And then he like wraps <laughs> his tie around her neck and then like just like moves her down. Like, and then he just like gets topped off by this prostitute and then leaves his tie at, at like at the scene of this interview, which will come back later. Mm-hmm. But like he's already being stalked by the, the Puma sneakers murderer. Mm-hmm. And we're we're like, it's the first prostitute that he's seen in this movie and we're already introduced to the concept of a pegging double team with two women where one is like pegging a guy and the other is getting fucked by a guy and it's like it only escalates from there truly with all the (laughs) depravity that he becomes privy to i i also want to say like i feel like you can kind of bend yourself out of shape trying to make a case for like clint eastwood being progressive or something but if this were like a de palma movie this stuff that's been teased where it's like the killer is him oh it's him at the beginning oh he leaves his tie there maybe they're one in the same after all like that's something that a cheaper worse movie would do but the fact that this is like no 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 West Block and this killer just both love going to the same sex <laughs> yeah. spots. And he's a good guy. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, that's what makes him so cool is like, he can be like a sicko pervert, but it's not like an actual form of moral perversion in any way. Well, yeah. And also that, like, it, it doesn't really. His, his, uh, his sort of, I don't know, like his sexual exploration in this movie is not something that's, uh, set up to like uh, sort of like really separate him from his daughters or family. Like it's just, I, I think this is like a, 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 
the Clint Eastwood's attempt to sort of like you know uh, to render or wrestle with like like actual sexuality as like an adult man who's like you know he's a, he's a father he's divorced but like you know he works in this world of like CD sex stuff and is like you know sort of enthralled by it and and as a is partakes in it as well. Yeah, it's um, and there is one scene where his daughter's like, "Daddy, why aren't you coming home till late at night anymore?" And he's like. <sighs> Well, there are some people I can only talk to at night. <laughs> it's like, isn't there a scene where the daughter's like, "Daddy, what's giving head?" Oh yeah, it was a hard on. No, she said, "Daddy, what's a hard on?" Yeah, Daddy, what's double fisting? And like his his youngest daughter, like he's driving in the car with uh, his two daughters, and like you know, like the the scene before was him. Like, you know, at the scene of yet another homicide where, like, another sex worker has been murdered. Uh, she's been, like, strangled in a jacuzzi by this guy, like, you know, the, the sneakers killer, in a, you know, wearing a kabuki mask. And then, like, you know, uh, he gets another call. There's a bit of, like, another murder rape. And then, like, it's just sort of, like, there's, an, there's a scene where it's, like, the next day and he's driving his daughters around and his youngest daughter just says, Daddy, what's a hard on? And like the older daughter knows what she's talking about, and is sort of like, oh, oh, god. And Clint's attempts to explain it are so funny because he's just like, well, you see, it's it's so when a, when a man is attracted to a woman, he likes her. Understand? And like the, the daughter's obviously like, <laughs> <Yeah>. no, <laughs> like what? Like he's yeah, like, are you in the mafia? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is no hard on. There ain't no hard he's on, like and there never was. Off yeah. well. <laughs> 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 like he's been seeing like he's been seeing prostitutes like heavily throughout this movie and then he tries to explain what sex is to his like seven or eight year six or seven year old daughter and then like when she like doesn't get it when he's like you see it's just it's when a man likes a woman he likes her he really likes her and she's like uh no i don't get that and he just pushes it even further into euphemism and he's like he's like well he likes her in a certain way and you know well, male male bears, they like girl bears. <laughs> and he starts going into the whole like, well, you know, you got a a boy dog and a girl dog, and then Allison Eastwood just like get like he's just like she saves him because she's like, Dad, forget about it. We don't need to go there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She just like grabs a wheel and crashes the car to end the conversation. She's like, Dad, she's five years old. You don't need to do yeah. this right now. <laughs> uh and then, of course, uh, like he, he goes to a uh, like in his investigating work, he, he goes to a tattoo parlor to like because, uh, you know, the, the second victim had a tattoo that says looking for love like on her inner thigh, you know, really like slippery when wet kind of kind of thing here. And he goes to the tattoo artist and then like uh, like as he's interviewing the tattoo artist, there is a hot bimbo sucking off a popsicle, getting some work done. Who Like he mm-hmm. immediately picks her up. Yeah. And, and I think I read in the. The uh, trivia that they were having an affair in real life too. <laughs> which... Yeah. Oh yeah, and she, this was behind Sandra Locke's back. Who was? Oh god, uh, Sandra Locke really was actually like supposed to be. Like... She was supposed to be cast in the Genevieve Bujold character, but apparently the studio said that people were sick of seeing Sandra Locke in Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah, and Sandra said sure. that she did the uh, the mitzvah of recommending Genevieve Bujold. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Clint was apparently having sex with that actress. Oh, with Vanessa something or other. I can't remember the last name. Uh, but Sandra, despite herself being like a kept woman while Clint was married, was shocked to learn that he was having an affair with another woman on the set who's like, yeah, introduced sucking out a popsicle, wearing roller skates, like fucking Heather Graham and Boogie Nights. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And uh, she she works at the uh, the the KY wrestling establishment in which you know women in bikinis wrestle each other as they're uh, refereed by a dwarf who like knows West Block and he's like you know he's like hey like hey what are you I, how you doing Wes uh, how, how things shaking out this evening and he's like pumps him for some cocky yours <laughs> 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 uh, so like he takes the uh, the popsicle bimbo uh, back to her place and like they, they talk about uh, all the kinky sex that the victim was into and that also hey like she she wasn't to this one guy I think he was a cop or something maybe it was you and then like the next scene we're like we're, like we're treated to like a really long prolonged shot of Clint's fully lubed up body and like you see his ass for like a good 5 or 10 seconds on screen he looks great as he's like he was yeah <laughs> it, he looks fantastic like truly like and he must get into like a mostly vegetarian diet yeah <laughs> <laughs> This is this is probably the wettest sex scene in in movie history, and it, and it's revealed that he is he is handcuffed uh, he has handcuffed the popsicle bimbo to the bed. Now let me ask you both this: Do you think that this movie is implying that he develops a handcuff for fetishing women as the movie progresses, or is that he's always had this interest in like bondage and rough sex? I think his daughter's like it's 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 very strange because as his daughter says, like, Daddy, why are you not? coming home why are you not coming home till late anymore which kind of implies that he just started doing this for from this investigation but it really does not seem you know he seems like an expert he seems like he knows what he's doing and knows all these places so <laughs> yeah yeah there's also like the scene where he's at the gay bar that we've kind of alluded to where he suggests that he's like had relationships with men uh but i don't know i think that he's Okay, so my sensitive reading on this is like, this is a divorced guy. He doesn't want to bring home a new woman to his daughters. So, you know, he's just trolling the French Quarter at night having like random sex. But I don't think that like, yeah, it's this sort of psychological thing. It's not like straight or bisexual cruising where he's like being demented by it while investigating it. I don't think. I think he like comes into the movie as a horny guy and leaves as a horny guy. I I believe like it. At one point, he tells the Genevieve Bujold character, like, who asks him, like, oh, do you have friends? Like, because he runs into the, the woman who uh, uh, gave him head earlier in the movie, the prostitute, like, when he's out on a date with his daughters and Genevieve Bujold, who's become his love interest at that point. She's like, oh, do you have many friends like that? And he's like, only after I got divorced. Like, he, he sort of says that, like, mm-hmm. he developed these, these interests, like, you know, as, as a divorced guy. Yeah, whatever the case, I mean, he takes to it all like a fish to water. Oh, yeah, he doesn't even blink. He's loving it. <laughs> so, yeah, like, he's had sex with about three different people involved in this murder investigation so far. But then, like, in this case, like, the, the stupid police chief is like, look, one thing is a constant, and it's that the higher-ups in the police department are always going to be chewing your ass out for results, but then getting mad when you get them. So, like... Basically, the mayor is like, uh, who, who he says, like, I, I heard the mayor is a queer or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Freak. She's, the mayor is friends with Genevieve Bujold. So he goes back to her, like, as you said, John, North Korean style, like <laughs> women's self-defense <laughs> classes where they attack a bucket-headed robot and kick its testicles out. And I really love in that scene, like, this, like, this phalanx of women are just going, no. No, no. And then Clint's just in the background going, these all these broads got a chip on their shoulder. Hey, ladies. Yeah, he's like tuck rolling through the entire gauntlet of like 40 women. Dark Souls dodge rolling. Just like. Yeah, exactly. Like sliding through their legs. (laughs) And then like uh, Genevieve Bujol's character is sort of like she's teaching the class and she's like, oh. 
like, here's what you do if a guy is, is, in her words, still acting tacky. And she's like, oh, you can stomp on his foot, like scratch his face. And like, if that still doesn't work, there's always the old kick him in the balls. And she like wheels back and kicks this robot like dead square in its uh, junk and like knocks out its like basket of tennis balls that is there to to simulate the uh, the, the the male uh, genitalia. And I really like it that like one of the tennis balls just he kicks it out and it bounces all the way to Clint who just picks it up and is like, "Hey gals, it's me." <laughs> it's me. <laughs> I, <I'm, laughs> he's like, they, they should just have had a, like his face on the dummy like attacking it. Like the they should have had yeah, like a dirty hairy everything poster. evil about men. <laughs> They should have had it be like two like kiwis or something, and he should have like gotten it once it rolled over to him and taken a bite out of it. <laughs> hey, ladies! Yeah, and you see the juice <laughs> yeah. drip down his chin suggestively, <laughs> and like you know, so he needs like he's finally going to give like some like he's given her the high hat thus far. But, you know, he's going to share some information with Genevieve Bujold, who's trying to, like, you know, raise awareness and sort of, like, uh, hand out flyers and let women in, uh, in, in New Orleans know that there's this rapist and killer on the loose. And, uh, but he just wants the mayor off his back. And he says, I, I hear you used to go out with the mayor. And she goes, from time to time. And he goes, I hear he's gay. And then she goes, why? Do you want to date with him? And it's just, like, <laughs> this first indication of, like, both, like, you know, as we'll get into later, but also, like, the thing that people talk about in this movie all the time is in the Genevieve Bujold character. They're like, this is the first time Clint's had like an actual equal in his love interest as this woman who's like a feminist and can sort of give it back to Clint with his like condescending put downs as good as she uh, receives it. And she sort of, she rolls with it, but she kind of like stands up for herself and sort of puts Clint in his place as this kind of empowered, educated woman, which is like, uh, it was thought of as this like really daring thing for Clint to do. It's like, oh, a woman who can read is in one of your movies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's also the thing where it's like, because she's like a private citizen who's doing good things, she's like, it's not like he's being teamed up with a partner who's on his case all the time or something like that. Like there's this way that she's at enough of a distance away from his character that he can respect her. And she's not like on his ass. And she really way. only shows up in his like story when he like does a booty call at one point or follows her to the gym. And those are like the two moments where she kind of shows up like that. And when the killer tries to kill her at the very end. But um, so he, she really is like kind of on demand on at his beck and call. He's never like forced to be with her at any point. Um, except towards the beginning when he's trying to avoid her because he's like, oh, one of those crazy rape ladies? Uh, no thanks. <laughs> and I think the other interesting relationship with uh, a woman that Clint Eastwood has in this movie is with his daughter, played by his real-life daughter, Allison Eastwood, who's like, you know, the... Uh, the, the mom like lives elsewhere and is getting remarried and like you know like Alice Eastwood's character is like obviously really really loves her dad and is very sad that like she may have to go live somewhere else and like not see him as much but there's this thing where like we see like pictures of their their home life and like the eldest daughter is really like it's it, one of those things where she sort of like subconsciously or consciously adopted the role of his wife because like he gets up in the morning and she's like cooking pancakes and eggs for him and she's like she's like oh okay like you know make sure to eat something before you go out trawling the the sex pits of New Orleans dad <laughs> but I want I want to get to actually like um, 
even even as he becomes interested in Genevieve Bujold, he just can't stop fucking women connected to this case because like he goes out again to like another another sex dungeon to learn more about violent sex. And he's being voyeuristically watched by the uh, the the Puma sneakers killer. But like this time, he sort of like uh, is there to it, it, not even to interview someone. He just peeks in a room at like a brothel, and it's this woman who's got sort of like I don't know, I'll, I'll, sexy librarian vibes. And he just sort of like looks at her for a second, and like she beckons him in, and then she jacks him off with like a like a vibrating hand massager <laughs> as the yeah. killer watches them from like behind some screen. <laughs> it was really this was really like the the flimsiest excuse for him to go to like a brothel or uh you know a place of iniquity because i mean at least when he was going to see at least when he went to the lube house it was he was going to see that <laughs> girl that he saw earlier but this time he's just like it just cuts to him in this den and he's like you know this woman with big glasses is there and then the next victim of the killer is um a nurse and he somehow like was it supposed to be the same woman? No, the, next, he... the next victim of the... It's the same woman that he was just... Like, the okay, one who jacks okay. him off with the vibrating hand massager. Like, the next day, because the killer watches them, and the killer is, like, like as we will learn, is, like, doing this to Detective Block specifically, uh, he finds her body washed up on the riverbank, and, like, he has to, like, talk to the medical examiner about, like, his fluids inside of her. <laughs> and, like, he's... Because I... the, he's realizing the killer's watching him, that the killer's kind of fucking with him, and that, like, it may be a problem how many people connected to this case let's just say he knows <laughs> yeah yeah uh, there's a, bef yeah. a before dna where <laughs> yeah. you know you could <laughs> do but the thing i like about this voyeurism thing like i love that scene where like the guy's watching him because again it's like an inversion of the trope in movies like this where the cop becomes perverted or drawn in by watching the killer's crimes in this voyeuristic way but in this the killer is almost like, damn, West Block, like you got it all sewn up. <laughs> like he's almost jealous of him because he's, he's like, like more yeah, of no, a pervert. Yeah. And like, and, and then he tries to entreat him into like, he's like, hey, Wes, your stroke game is excellent. I, I love the way you handcuff those women and I love all the lube and everything. But I'm going to show you a few, um, a few kinky details that maybe you don't know. Like having sex with men. Because like there's this scene where like he uh, he sort of like sends Clint Eastwood to a gay bar wearing a a flower on his rappel lapel is kind of like cruising code, and he gets there and he's like bought yeah. him some like rough trade, and then he's like oh like he like he he got me for you like don't don't you want it and he's like how oh, you know I haven't had it already, and like that <laughs> yeah. that's the iconic moment of queering Clint Eastwood where like even even as a even as sort of a a put down or an aside or a one liner. For Clint's character to even like jokingly imply that he's done gay stuff is like, you know, once again, this is the man. I think he really is like consciously trying to kill the Dirty Harry character on screen with the with Detective West Block. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely read it like that. I mean, it was received like that at the time. Like, you know, it's interesting because in a lot of the beats, it is essentially a Dirty Harry movie, but all the reviews are like Eastwood kinks up his persona. Eastwood, not afraid to uh, threaten his own sense of machismo and all this, you know, and it is like kind of true. I mean, I couldn't imagine like Schwarzenegger or Stallone or other like avatars of American masculinity in this era taking a risk in this same way. Uh, Although we, I guess Stallone literally did do pornography. <laughs> <before he was laughs> yeah. <famous. laughs> uh, can we talk about the scene where he, uh, he hits on Genevieve Bujold at the gym? Cause this is like oh, classic, yeah. classic, classic what women love at the gym 
is when a guy (laughs) goes right behind them on the machine they're using and starts doing dips. And like, there's (laughs) a scene where they're. It's like, it's like. Cock outline is like going up the small of her back, you know, yeah. going up and down. <laughs> and there's this scene where they're both they're both working on like uh like they're they're looking at each other through uh like the various weight machines that they're working out on, and they're both just making eye contact as these weights like rhythmically pulse up and down, and they're looking at each other, and he's like, "Hey, this uh this feminist broad, I think she's got something. She's uh, making me interested." And like they go on a date, yeah. they get oysters on a steamboat, and I was like, "Man, I got to go back to New Orleans. What a cool city!" Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, I- this is the kind of thing where it's like, it's like when you watch like uh, New York movies from the '70s, and everyone's like, oh, when Times Square was this horrible shithole.' It's like I fucking wish <laughs> yeah. I could go to Times Square in the '70s. You know, like the French Quarter now is probably just like a fucking M M&M and M store and like a Kid Rock themed honky yeah. tonk." I but when they're at dinner, they're eating oysters very sensually. Um, in very the grand tradition of yeah, grand tradition of oysters as erotic thing to eat. Um, in films, but he tells her like, you know, I saw you at the gym, and I thought um, I, th- I started thinking some things, and she's like, what things? <laughs> and he's like, what it would be like to lick the sweat off your naked body. <laughs> I mean, I like your hair. Like, wow, that's pretty crazy to say that to me. Yeah, but she's clearly interested. They like they spend the day together. They like learn. They talk a little bit about each other's lives, and then like uh, she goes home at the end of the night. Like he doesn't fuck her. So what he do, but then but then he goes home to his daughters and tells them about this date he just went on with this woman, and they're like, "Oh, daddy, like, did you kiss or whatever?" And like pointedly. After like coming home at like four in the morning after like <laughs> fucking prostitute after prostitute and just never telling his daughters about any woman in his life, he's interested now because like he, this is a woman he can bring around his kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she 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 becomes like the surrogate mother that he wasn't able to find in a bunch of like red lit rooms that he's been yeah. through. <laughs> and then his youngest daughter at one point says, "She says, yeah, daddy, you can have a heart on anytime you want." And then he's like, oh, brother, yeah. his neighbor. That's, that's when the movie should have ended with like the porky pig Iris on Clint's face. <laughs> so like uh, at this point, like the killer starts sending him Zodiac style notes and like uh, sending him little dolls constructed of his crimes and like sending him evidence. Can I, and yeah. Can I say th- the construction of the killer of this is like the worst part of the movie. Yeah. It's like someone just had every idea for a movie serial killer and put it all in one thing. It's like, Oh, he's got stupid shoes. Oh, he's wearing a Japanese mask. Oh, now he makes dolls with riddles in them. It's like, it's a real, pick, it's a real lane. <laughs> it's a real potpourri. It's real grab. He bag. pretends to be a cop, of a movie serial killer trope. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and then I, I love that we're like, he, he sends Clint on this like kink mission, where like he sends him to a dominatrix that like slaps him around and then is like presents him with a whip who's like he said you'd want to use this on me and it's just like he has no idea what's going on he, he like he sends him to the uh to the, to the gay bar to get picked up and then like and then the the the, the rough trade that the, the the killer hired he he is then murdered himself and he like, kind of leaves that you know, guy out it, to dry yeah he's he like just sends him across the street to get paid and murdered by this guy and then he's just like oh. <laughs> Guess it's another, guess another homicide. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, literally. One of the pieces of evidence that the serial killer sends him is a broken popsicle stick, uh, signaling that the popsicle bimbo has been also made a victim of this serial killer. And then, like, 
you know, Clint has to come back and he sees the KY dwarf referee being interviewed by other cops. And he's like, oh, this is all getting a bit, a bit close yeah. to home for me. <laughs> the, the, um, the chief asks him, just out of curiosity, how many of the other victims did you know? <laughs> he's like, uh, his, his daughter's giving a statement. It's like, he said a hard on is when a dog is in love. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so like yeah, like he he goes on a he goes on a uh, date like with Genevieve Bouchard and his daughters to Mardi Gras. Um, the the serial killer is uh, one more trope that we can add to the serial killer's uh, repertoire. He appears as a clown in this scene. And, oh my like, god! Gives Clint Eastwood's yes. daughter uh, a balloon with the red ribbon that he strangles women with, and then uh, he he brings Genevieve home uh, for his daughter's approval, and you know like they they love her. And then she sort of like asks him about like the handcuffs by his bed and like whether he likes, uh, you know, handcuffing women. And she sort of like is like, oh, it's because you need to feel like safe and you're threatened by women. But then she like clicks it around her own wrist and sort of presents it to him. And then he demurs on that. He well, she it's it's like she says, um, why do you think the killer likes using handcuffs and picks up the handcuffs? And Clint, without even one second of hesitation, is like control. <laughs> it's like, oh, <okay. laughs> because it's hot to do because it's so hot it really turns him on <laughs> he's uh he's probably aroused by the sight of a restrained female body <laughs> i read <Yeah. laughs> there's uh, a great scene where like they go to the brewery because they've linked all these like uh the various fibers found in like found at the scenes it's like a mix of glass and barley so they link barley. It, <laughs> so they link it to a brewery, and there's this scene where, like, he again, a, a very erotically looks at beer bottles being filled with liquid and like foaming over as he has flashbacks to like all of the other murder victims. And at this is the point of the movie where like the killer is so close to him that like actually like, oh he has he has um he has a nightmare about killing Genevieve Bouchold at one point, but the killer has like stalked him to his home. And then, like, does a home invasion and, like, ties up his daughters and kills his maid and several of his dogs. And, like, when I first saw this movie, I thought it was implied that, like, the killer raped his daughter. And I was like, this is making me feel not good that it's Clint Eastwood's actual daughter in this movie. But if you yeah. listen very carefully, there's a scene where Harry's, like, to Dan Hedaya, he's like, he didn't. And then, and then Dan Hedaya goes, no, 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 no. And like they're sort of like, oh, okay. He just he just gagged and tied her to a bed. So I and punched her. She has a black so small eye favors. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will say it's also invasive if to find out that a serial killer works at the brewery of the beer that you're drinking the whole movie. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Like, that's his favorite goddamn drink. And this creep's working there bottling it. Because <laughs> like yeah, the killer sees him at the brewery, and like that's like a, like he escalates from that point because he knows that he's like very close to being apprehended. Mm-hmm. And then we get a great scene of like Clint Eastwood coming home to his violated bedroom and having a meltdown where he's just like knocks off everything on the dresser, smashes a mirror, and just goes, "You motherfucker, I'll fucking kill you!" <laughs> but 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 un- <laughs> but unlike Dirty Harry, it's like it's this rage that's like uh, he can't direct it anywhere. It's just a rage born mm-hmm. out of frustration and helplessness, rather than just that like you know uh, criminal scum in general that he's like you know he just hates that they keep getting off. 
Yeah, he loses his cool. And, and also a little internalized because so much of his like struggle in this movie is like navigating his own desires versus not submitting to them so much that he implicates himself in the crime. And there's this increasingly mounting feeling that he knows that he's like in too deep into too many fucking women and stuff like that. So it's like there's this idea that he almost feels that like the jig is up for him in a way and that he's gotten too horny and has to finally fucking take mm-hmm. this guy because down. Because at the at the scene where the popsicle girl's body is, there's a statue there where his necktie from the first scene is like wrapped around its neck. And he's like, it has this look on his face like, oh, how am I going to explain this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like th- there's a scene earlier in the movie where he's like talking to a psychologist at one point who uh, who tells him that like, you know, there, there's a darkness in all of us and like it's a tightrope for for us like and like, oh, there's there's a movie. It's this tightrope that all men are on that we're just sort of like teetering over the edge of like being a law abiding citizen and doing rapes and murders. And it's just like <laughs> we, we all got to walk that tightrope. You know, we can go either way at any given moment. Yeah, it really like goes to the point of like really the only difference, the difference given between him and the killer is that the killer is a psycho. <laughs> that's like yes he, he murders yeah. that's how end. vague <laughs> i mean that's a key difference yeah, i think that's how but, vague yeah. it is like it's truly like <laughs> one like wow if there but for the grace of not being a psycho go i <laughs> yeah so like yeah like uh the, the killer has targeted him and his family uh genevieve bujol of course like you know uh helps with uh, his own daughter bring her own skills as like a crisis counselor to help clint's own family Basically, like at this point, they like they narrow it down all the brewery employees and find that one of them is an ex cop who Clint Eastwood to Detective West Block sent to Angola prison for like 11 years for raping these teenagers like, you know, a while ago. And he like he just got out of Angola and, you know, like they they, he puts it all together like he's been targeting Clint Eastwood and he targets Genevieve Bujold and like Clint races back to her house to save her as like, you know, this as he's in a fully in a gimp mask. Now he's moved on from the kabuki mask to the full on like machine gimp mask. And he he, like, you know, he's sort of uh, by the way, as a great scene where like Frankenstein style lighting flashes like. It's like like yeah. a mad oh, scientist yeah. when there's a thunder crack, thunder crack and it's like and a you see this like yeah yeah it's like a universal horror movie yeah and then there's this like this long foot chase where like he chases the killer into a train train yard and I was like this is the one part of the movie is like a, the foot chase goes on a bit too long. And basically, it's, like they wrestle. It has a classic, like bad double ending, where it's like <laughs> yeah. it could have ended in his house or at Genevieve Bujold's house, but then it's like no, he has to like, you know, it's not a James Cameron movie; it doesn't have to end in like some industrial yeah, it's, landscape because they go like through that. like a cemetery first too, and it's like yeah, once they're in the cemetery, it's like oh, this is like the last, this is the last level in the video game Manhunt, and then no, <laughs> yeah. they're going to a train yard and um. One of the funniest, like, the ending is really crazy because they're wrestling and the train is coming. They're wrestling on the tracks. And then um, their, like, hands are on each other's necks. And Clint rolls out of the way at the last second. And the guy's hand is still on his neck. And then it pans up and very cartoon, like, you know. (laughs) It reminds me of, like, movies I made in seventh grade for, like, class. Where there's literally like a cartoon like rubber hand grabbing his neck and not connected to anything. And he's like, oh, get that off of me. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
I like to imagine the Fablemans, but this is the train crash scene yeah. that Sammy <laughs> Fableman is like compulsively remaking with an eight millimeter camera. <laughs> so yeah, and like, and yeah, that's pretty much the end of the movie. Like he's reunited with Genevieve Bouchard and his daughters, and like you know, exactly like sudden impact, the camera just helicopter just you know zooms out, pans away, credits roll, and you know, uh, and Clint is a, but in this movie. And in sudden impact, he learned that um, it feels good to kill people outside the law. And um, he found a sort of a kindred spirit in that. And in this movie, he's like, you know what? It feels good to like get, you know, sort of have, be self-aware of my own sexuality and but also respect women at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also want to say just to bring it back to the New Orleans Saints thing. This is such like football uh, tr- nerd shit. But this movie is made during the Saints era where their linebackers were known as the Dome Patrol <laughs> and Dome Patrol would be a sick name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Dome Patrol. <laughs> Just clint out on Dome Patrol every night in the French Quarter. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so there you go. Two two Clint Eastwood classics, sudden impact and dome patrol. <laughs> yeah. But you know, like I, I just like I I, I wanted to talk about tightrope because it is like in in my opinion, it's like the least discussed. Like it's given how insane it is and like given how much Clint like gives of himself in this movie in a way that he really hasn't in other movies. It's it's odd to me that this is like a very like little remarked upon Clint Eastwood film. And I think it's uh is very very worthy of investigation. Oh, absolutely. I was like shocked when I saw it. I was like, how have I never heard of this? This is really crazy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the 80s are like kind of a weird lost decade for Eastwood. Like everyone loves the 70s actioners like Josie Wales and, you know, the Dirty Harry movies. But then it's like a lot of the flicks I love by him are in the 80s, like Bronco Billy, which I mentioned. This is a great movie. White Hunter Blackheart, which maybe is 1990, is an amazing movie. But I think it's this kind of like period between his 70s superstardom and then like Unforgiven coming out, which being such an obvious revision and attack on his own iconography and that of the Western and that of America was, you know, Harold and became this Oscar winning film. But it kind of feels like in the eighties that he's working towards something that like unforgiven does, yeah. you know, at a 10 or a 10. Absolutely. Level. Cause like, you know, he's, he's most associated with his like cowboy Western roles and like unforgiven is like, you know, the masterpiece, like revision of, of the man with no name character, like the, the bill money character where like, you realize like he starts out the movie as this kind of like, I don't know, like, like this old man. And you're like, is this guy a pussy or what? Like, what the fuck? Like, why is everyone talking about him? Like, Covered in a, pig shit. Just a badass. Sliding around. And then you're like, yeah. oh shit. Like he actually is like a cold blooded killer. And like, that's like, that's who he really is. Like that's, that's what the West is. That's what the myth of the West is. And I think you're totally right, John. I think in this movie, like this is like pre unforgiven. This is him doing the same uh, subversion and deconstruction of his own mythological cinema performances, but he's doing it to his cop roles. He's doing it to the Dirty Harry character in Tightrope by making it like a, a more thought, like, a, you know, just a more thoughtful and considered movie about like justice and police work, but also like his own, his own relationship to women and himself, basically. Yeah. And also the idea that like this 
good cop by good. I just mean like competent and able to solve crimes, uh, has desires that aren't just enacting violence and this sort of conveying this form of menace that just like chills people into obeying the law that they can have like complicated (laughs) and perverse desires as individuals. Uh, it's so weird. It's like, I mean, I obviously love Eastwood, but it's like, his persona on screen and off is so locked in that he can change it by like 3%. Yes. And it's like, this is the, yeah. this is like, so like the most radical so gesture that's ever been made. Yeah. Yeah. No, and this movie is just, as I said at the beginning, like it's as simple as, as just showing a dog likes him. And they're like, oh, we're, we've, we've made a radical departure from the dirty Harry Callahan character. Yeah, exactly. No, this stuff isn't getting to me. The shootings, the knifings, the beatings, old ladies being bashed in the head for their social security checks, teachers being thrown out of a fourth floor window because they don't give A's. That doesn't bother me a bit. Come on, Harry, take it easy. Or this job either, having to wade through the scum of this city, being swept away by bigger and bigger waves of corruption, apathy, and red tape. Now that doesn't bother me. But you know what does bother me? What? You know what makes me really sick to my stomach? What? It's watching you stuff your face with those hot dogs. Nobody, I mean nobody, puts ketchup on a hot dog. What the hell are you talking about? Well, so, so there you have it. The, uh, the legend, the icon, Clint Eastwood. And like I said, his, uh, his mastery of self-invention and, uh, and, and sort of like creative control over his own image and, like the, and, and the fun that one can have with that in, as we see in these two movies. So uh, we'll leave it there for this episode. John Semley, I want to thank you for your Eastwood expertise and your article on all of the fake Clint Eastwood accounts that I hope never go away. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me and follow me at Clint Eastwood. <laughs> 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 we we thoroughly condemn the pretender Jeffrey Nugent, twenty seven of China, uh, Clint Eastwood, Malpaso Productions. Like we are on your side here. And if you ever want a if you ever want a social media manager to do the, the actually official Clint Eastwood Twitter website, then I, I know a few people you can call. Folks, remember look for the logo. Mm-hmm. That's where you can separate <laughs> the watermark. The frauds from they the genuine article. Look you can't for the logo. fake it. <laughs> Unfakeable. It's, unfakeable. Yeah. it's like an ID. <laughs> Um, should we name a few extended some other Clint works that people should check out before we go? Or yeah, absolutely. Uh, John, do you have do you have some like, like uh, top, some, some wild card Clint five. favorites? Yeah, mine off the top of my head is High Plains Drifter, which is like my favorite because mm-hmm. that's like his deconstruction. It's another deconstruction of the Man with No Name character, but it's in his youth, like hot off the tail end of that like trilogy, basically, and he's like. The whole point is that he's like the devil, literally, is like an evil... He's Satan incarnate. Yeah, a a monster, just an evil monster who shows up in this town and like makes it, turns it into hell, and then literally turns it into hell and then just pieces out. Um, And everyone's worse off for him showing up, and it's really um, fantastic, and I love that one. Um, Also, Sully, you gotta check out Sully. 1517 to Paris, which deserves a whole other episode because it's truly the greatest <laughs> movie ever made. <laughs> First, yeah. The acting in that movie is, I mean, I can't even get into it. The Name one other movie that stars Steve Urkel and Spencer Stone. Okay, <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> God, there's so many Clint bangers. Um, well, has, uh, you mentioned um, 
uh, High Plains Drifter, but I would recommend, uh, as, a, as a good double feature with High Plains Drifter, I would recommend Clint's Pale Rider, which is, like, I think another, mm. another iteration on High Plains Drifter, but instead of being Satan incarnate, he's a stranger who comes to town who's, like, an angel incarnate. And he, he's good and not evil in The Pale Rider, but it's basically kind of the same movie. He, like, he helps some wildcat miners from, like, a big evil mining corporation. And then, like, as long as we were talking about Sandra Locke, the Clint Eastwood movie that I saw for the first time very recently and would definitely recommend is The Gauntlet, where it's him and Sandra Locke. Oh, God, yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> it, it, it's Clint playing one of like the, the, I would say the dumbest character he's ever played. And Sandra Locke is great running circles around him in that movie. But like, it's <laughs> like, you know, he's this like shithead cop who like, we're like, the mob and like every police officer in Nevada are trying to kill him and this prostitute that he's trying to like uh, bring to the testify in time. And there literally is a gauntlet at the end of the movie where like <laughs> a bus gets shot with like 10 billion bullets. <laughs> yeah, his own police force turns on him. He's like this hungover idiot that everyone hates. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone, like literally everyone on planet Earth is just like in a crossfire trying to murder him in the climax. <laughs> oh man, those are all great. Like the other one I mentioned that I'd love to shout out is uh, Bronco Billy from 1980, which I have like a poster of beside me right here. But it's like Clint plays kind of a rodeo cowboy with a roving uh, gang of uh, miscreants, and he hooks up with. Sandra Locke is kind of this like rich hoity toity woman who joins his act. And it's again, another thing where I feel like he's toying with his persona in the sense that, you know, he's not playing a literal cowboy, but someone who's playing a cowboy, but everyone loves him and adores him. And it's just revealed that he's like, an Al Bundy style shoe salesman loser who just like started doing this. Uh, and just a super fun movie that I think has like, even before something like Gran Torino, uh, the kind of libertarian model of Clint's perfect world where it's like, you can have people from every race and background together. And as long as you can all say slurs to each other, everything's <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, Bronco Billy, check out for sure. And then the other one I love, which is Don Siegel, but Eastwood stars in, is The Beguiled. Oh, oh that's so like good. Plays. Maybe the, the best Beguiled performance. The Beguiled is so Eastwood good. Performance. And, and, and horny in yeah. like a strictly hetero way, but a very kind of like but totally perverse, muggy Civil A totally movie. perverse Definitely. movie, The Beguiled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Clint Eastwood plays a wounded Union soldier during the Civil War who is nursed back to health in an all-girls Confederate boarding school and has sex yeah, with It's like a porno set. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Literally. <laughs> he, like, sed he seduces and then is like destroyed by all of these like insanely horny Southern teenage girls and their like, stern headmistress. It is such a perverse movie. And then as long as you're talking the other Don Siegel, Clint Eastwood movies, probably my favorite of all time is Escape from Alcatraz, but also Don't Sleep on awesome. Coogan's Bluff. The only Clint Eastwood movie where he's in New York City, baby, number one. You see the, the Clint Eastwood cowboy man. It's like in, in that era, it's like he's a representation. He's an Arizona cop who has to like uh, like uh, serve a warrant or like uh, pick up a, a suspect in, in the Big Apple. And it's like this representation of like like the conservative turn of like Goldwater Republicanism sort of uh, coming into contact with like the moderate Nelson Rockefeller Republicanism of New York and the in the late sixties. It's a great culture clash, like a uh, uh, police thriller. And also Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which I was just yeah. going to say, yeah. <laughs> Michael Cimino, one of the great, like, 
Yeah. I was on another podcast recently. We were talking about wet shirt movies <laughs> where it just like got guys in the heat soaking through their shirts with like six packs dangling on their fingers. And like Thunderbolt Lightfoot is like the wet shirt. Oh, yeah. Movie, where it's like Eastwood opposite of young Jeff Bridges. And he hated that Jeff Bridges was like mugging and being too handsome. And he like refused to ever co-star with someone in a film again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Honestly, throw a dart at the Clint Eastwood cannon and you will not miss. You will not miss. You will not be Perfect disappointed. Yeah, there's yeah. no... Everything's at the very least worth watching, truly. Except maybe the Deadpool, which is... Well, no, because... Well, you got you Jim Carrey, Liam, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Deadpool, by far, by far the goofiest Dirty Harry movie. Like, it feels like almost like a TV movie. Like, it's yeah. just... And like ludicrous in like both how absurd it is and how amateurish every aspect of the Deadpool is. But I would say yeah. it's worth watching just for that reason alone. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. J. Edgar, which I actually really like as a movie. I genuinely talk, talk I about genuinely love yeah. that movie. <laughs> All right. We could go on forever about Eastwood, but let's leave it there. That was movie mindset. Thanks again, John Semley. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a blast. 